Thank you. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 this evening, please. First Timothy chapter number six. And let's go ahead and stand. Our passage this evening will be verses 17, 18, <clears throat> excuse me, and 19. First Timothy chapter six, verses 17 through 19. <clears throat> Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to desert to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. And let's pray. Father, my prayer this evening is simple. Since this passage describes almost every single one of us in the room. That we would take it to heart and be obedient to it. That we would not be callous towards your word or indifferent to it. Or excuse ourselves from it but would endeavor to live to that which it teaches. And Father, this will be the result of your work in our hearts, and I pray that it would be so. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may, of course, be seated. Well, money has been on Paul's mind since chapter 6 and verse number 8. It's on our minds much of the time. And it is on God's mind much of the time. I think for different reasons, we think about money because we need it, because we want it, because we want those things that it can obtain for us. God thinks about it because He recognizes the competition when He sees it. And there are no shortage of people who have been sidetracked Not simply by bad stewardship, and there's plenty of that, prodigality, the misspending of one's money. But by not thinking properly about money. And so Paul cautioned us, first of all, about the pursuit of money at the expense of godliness. And he didn't say that anybody who does that might get into trouble. Paul said, anybody who does this is in trouble already. The trouble begins with the determination that one will get ahead. And then Paul warned us by warning Timothy to run away from that mentality. And that is going to be an upstream run in a country like ours. And not just a country like ours. I'm My wife and I still talk about this occasionally. I think it was 2004, 2005. We were down in Mexico. Um, Maybe it was even in the year 2000. I don't remember. Went a couple of times. And and 
they had taken us out one night <clears throat> um, to a middle class pastor's home um, where he was ministering in what is middle class in Hermosillo, Mexico is poverty in almost any place in America. And we were sitting there talking with the pastor with much difficulty for the language and asked him what problems he faced as a pastor in Mexico. And he said, worldliness, worldliness. Everybody wants to get ahead. But in the passage before us this evening, Paul turns his attention not to those who are in the pursuit of money, but to those who are in possession of it. So here's kind of the way the passage flows. Don't pursue it. Instead, pursue godliness. But it might be that God will give it to you. And if he does, then what? It is, folks, not money that is the problem. It is the love of money that is the problem. Jesus promised that if we put him first and if we put the righteousness of his kingdom first, he would add to us all those necessary things. That is his promise. You put me first. You be busy about what I command. I will take care of you. It is not necessarily the promise of fabulous wealth, but it is the promise of enough. And Paul told us that enough is the standard. Right? As he writes to those who are in servitude, having food and raiment, let us be there with content. And we are not in America man's servants, but we are God's servants. And having food and raiment, we should be there with content. Now, only the most obtuse and dense of historians would fail to see that free markets and financial prosperity are always byproducts of Christian thinking. It is not an accident, folks. It really is not any kind of an accident that the presence of tremendous poverty almost always exists in countries that do not recognize the basic principles of Christianity. Christianity can produce prosperity. That's not its goal. But when you take the whole package of system, beginning with the recognition of personal property rights, and you add to them human liberty, and you add to them a diligent work ethic, it should not be any surprise that the countries who have had the highest percentage of Christians and practicing Christianity have had historically the highest percentages of financial prosperity. So it is not at all uncommon, it is not at all unexpected that over the course of your life, and particularly for those of you who are younger, if you are not prodigal with your money, if you do not waste it, 
if you do not spend yourself into debt that is hopeless, and if you work hard, and if you are somewhat diligent, that you will find yourself with a surplus, having more than you need. And I mention all of that, folks, to make the argument that that must be the biblical definition of rich. Having food and raiment, be content. Now let's talk about those who are rich who have more than food and raiment. In other words, folks, none of us can come to this passage, and I realize that there is some measure of relative wealth, that we who would be just middle class in America would be fabulously wealthy in many parts of the world, but we are not wealthy by American standards. But we're not being measured by American standards. We're being measured by biblical standards. Do you have more than the basic essentials? Well, here's a passage for us. It's not a passage to the one percenters. It's a passage to all who have in abundance. And it is a passage about riches, folks. And in fact, we're going to take that word rich and that's going to help us to form the way we walk through the passage this evening. It is a passage about riches. Verse number 17, for instance. Charge them that are rich in this world, that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. So let's just start with this. Let's just start with the beginning of verse number 17 and note what God is telling us. And what he is telling us is this, that we who are rich in this world should not misinterpret our wealth. We who are rich in this world should not misinterpret our wealth. Charge them, command them that are rich in this world this is a word that Paul's used several times. 1 Timothy 1.3, charge some, charge some. 1 Timothy 4.11, it's translated command. 1 Timothy 6.13, I give you charge, and here it is, I charge you, I command you. Actually, all of us who have abundance are being commanded in this passage. And we are being commanded, first of all, not to misunderstand our wealth. How would I misunderstand it? By being high-minded about it. By being proud of your abundance. Taking us back to 6.5 as if this is some kind of validation of our spirituality. Supposing that gain is godliness. Do not think for a moment, folks. I hope that none of us do. I don't really think that any of us do, but here is the biblical caution. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. Do not think that our material abundance is evidence that God likes us better. As James wrote, Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith 
and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him. Being rich is not a prerequisite for being godly, and it is not the equivalent of being godly, and it is not the evidence of God's favor. Neither should we think from the highness of our minds that we are rich because we are harder workers or more intelligent or more creative, although we should be the hardest of workers and the most diligent of laborers. In Deuteronomy 8.11, God said to Israel, Beware that thou forget not the Lord thy God in in not keeping His commandments and His judgments and his statutes which I command thee this day, lest when thou art hast eaten and art full, and hast built goodly houses, and dwelt therein. And when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thou hast is multiplied, then thine heart be lifted up. And thou forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions and drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And thou say in thine heart, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. So to those of us who have riches, here is the first command. Do not be high-minded. Do not think that it in any way makes us better and do not think that it is any for any reason the cause of our special ability. If there is an ability, and Paul is not arguing, and the Bible is not arguing that God has not gifted you in a unique way that is materially prosperous, that is not the point. It is this, that that ability isn't native to you. It's a gift of the Lord. And if we have the strength to get up and work 40 hours a week or 50 hours a week, that is a gift from the Lord. And if we have an economy that has the ability to provide jobs so that we might work, that is a gift from the Lord. But that is not the only command in verse number 17. Charge them that are rich in this world. So one of my duties is to point out to you, although I would include myself in the rich in this sense of the word, that I am not to be high-minded, proud of my prosperity. But there is another command given, and it is this, nor trust in uncertain riches. Nor trust in uncertain riches. You should not transfer your trust to the money that you possess. The idea is that we should not put our hope in uncertain riches. Do we not, and maybe you, maybe you don't, 
But do we not wonder if there's not some magical amount of money out there that would insulate us from so many problems? That if somehow, without buying a lottery ticket, we could win the lottery, some aunt or uncle would leave us a lottery ticket and it would be the winner and we would find ourselves multimillionaires and we'd, we would be set for life and never have to worry again. But here is the command, here is the charge to all of us who have abundance, don't put your hope in riches which are uncertain. And they are, aren't they, folks? How is your retirement done, fund done in the last year? I'm looking at mine with some measure of sweat on my brow. This is not the best time in my life for the market to be racing to the bottom. Don't put your trust in uncertain riches. Jesus pointed out that they could be stolen, that they are corrupted, and in our world they are corrupted by the very thing we are combating today, inflation. This is part of the deceitfulness of riches, is that we don't necessarily know what the exact amount is, we just know this, it's more than what we have. And as soon as we start chasing more, we are in deep trouble. But folks, it isn't just the fact that the government can take them in taxes and inflation can erode their value and somebody can steal them that makes them uncertain. It is the fact that our money is not beyond God's reach. Remember Job? Remember Job? It wasn't the tax man that took his stuff. It wasn't inflation that ravaged his flocks. It was the hand of the Lord. Do not trust in riches that are uncertain. Do not misread Wealth, folks. How much we have and how well we live because of how much we have is the world's yardstick, not the Bible's. That's the world's value system. Worldliness goes far beyond the latest trend in clothing the latest upgraded cell phone. Worldliness is at its core going along with the value system of the world in which the acquisition of more and what more can provide is one of the most important indicators. Do not misunderstand the wealth that you have. Secondly, going back to verse number 17. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches. To those of us that have more than enough, do not be proud about what you have, 
Do not allow it to become a substitute for your trust in the Lord. But instead, trust in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. We who are rich in this world should celebrate God's richness to us, not the material richness we enjoy. Don't trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, the God who is alive, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. From His life, He gives. And this, by the way, folks, is one of the reasons that we cannot just outrightly condemn material things as evil, which some do. There are places in the Bible where the Bible is combating asceticism, the very notion that to have any material or physical pleasure in this world must be sinful. But we have those things because God gave them to us. Folks, to whatever extent we have money in the bank and whatever extent we have food in the pantry and to whatever extent we have gas in the car and to whatever extent... I was just talking to somebody about this. I don't really don't remember who I was talking to, but I just made mention of the fact that, that right, I consider this one of the great blessings that I enjoy, that, that I pastor a church, not that, that you are necessarily rich, but that we are relatively well off. And one of the things that happens when people are relatively well off is that they go places. You know, folks, if, if you were just scratching the surface to buy next week's groceries, you probably wouldn't take very many weekend trips or week-long vacations. And I don't begrudge that. I take them. My wife and I just went away for a couple of days this week. We left Friday morning, came back yesterday afternoon, went over to Winterset, Iowa, looked at the covered bridges, went to the, went to the covered bridge festival in Winterset, Iowa. But we did that because we have more than enough to eat and more than just the clothes on our backs. Those things are God's gifts. The ability to do those things are God's gifts and we are to celebrate God's richness to us. God richly gives us those things to enjoy. The context here, right, is, is not like this. Paul is not saying, Right? Trust in the Lord, you have your salvation, that's good enough. Paul is saying, trust in the Lord, look at all that God has given you in this world. Don't mismanage it, don't misunderstand it. Enjoy it. And by the way, the word enjoy there, folks, there's nothing mysterious about it. It means that God gave us stuff to enjoy. To enjoy. The only other place the word is used in the entire Bible is Hebrews 11.25 when it's used about Moses. He chose the affliction of the people of God instead of the pleasure of sin. God has given us things for our pleasure. That's the kind of living God that we have. So he doesn't begrudge us having them. He's 
He's not pleased by having a world of impoverished people. For, for some, for many, he is pleased that they have more than they need. Pleased to give it to them. Pleased for them to use it well and wisely. Which then brings us to this question, folks. If God has given me a surplus to enjoy, what is the right way to enjoy what God has given me? That brings me to the third point. Charge them that are rich in this world to not misunderstand their riches. Charge them that are rich in this world to celebrate God's richness towards them. And command them who are rich in this world to be rich in good works. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come, that they may hold on eternal life. So that we could make this argument, folks, if we are rich in stuff and poor in works, we cannot be enjoying what God has given us properly. But on the other hand, we can make this statement, you can't be rich in stuff and rich in works, and God is tremendously pleased. Now, I don't think in verse number 18, folks, if you look at it, I don't think that Paul is making or that God is making two points there. In other words, were we outlining the passage, I don't think that number one would be that they do good, number two, that they would be rich in good works, but that there are two expressions reinforcing the same idea that we are to be rich in the doing of works that are good. And in talking to us about our rich works would look like, God emphasizes one aspect. Giving. Look at the verse. Look at verse number 18. That they do good, that they be rich in good works. What do you have in mind, Lord? Well, this is what I have in mind. Ready to distribute, willing to communicate. Laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. That they may lay hold on eternal life. In other words, God does not talk so much about the accumulation of our riches, neither does he talk about the spending of our riches. God talks about the giving of our riches. Let me give you one word to define this phrase, ready to distribute. Here it is, liberal. That they be liberal 
Willing to, willing to communicate is an adjective form of this word, communion, one who shares. It is used to describe the partnership of James and John, or James, John, and Simon Peter in a fishing boat. They were partners. They were partners. These are pretty common Bible expressions for the way God instructs us to give. One of the things, of course, that we're supposed to do that really isn't being developed in this passage, I'm not going to give much time to, but we give to the Lord directly. And we give to the Lord directly by giving through the local church. That's the vehicle, folks. That's the venue. I'm not going to get, off, get all sidetracked and try to prove and make that point this evening. But right, we honor the Lord with our giving to Him by giving through the only agency that He has put His stamp of approval on in this age, and that's the church. But that is not our exclusive outlet for giving. Because God has other people that are not rich. And we have obligations there. And we're going to encounter people who have genuine needs and we have obligations there. Now, I would argue that God is not fundamentally opposed to us taking a vacation or buying a car or having a hobby. But if there's no money left to obey his clear commands because we are filled with hobbies and travels, then there is something wrong. That giving to the Lord has to be first priority and making sure that we set enough aside to help those, to help substantially those with needs. And then we can talk about the other ways to use it. With again, without taking the time to develop the entire theology of it this evening, the Bible is very clear. God has very carefully spelled out what he thinks our financial priority should be. First is him, always him. When the Jew gave God the tenth, he gave a tenth, not number ten out of ten, but the first out of ten, a tenth. God was first always. He's first in the law, he's first in the Gospels, he's first in the Bible. And then the Bible is clear that we are to use our money for our legitimate material needs. Housing for our families, food for our families provision for our families. And then there is giving to the needs of others. 2 Corinthians 9.8 God is able to make all grace abound toward you that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, He hath dispersed abroad. God is the great giver. He hath given to the poor. His righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, well, who feeds the farmer? God. Both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So there are the priorities. God, and then of course our families, and then the needs of others. To go back to the text, 
Right? God focuses on one way we use the riches of material things that He gives us. Not the accumulation, not even the spending, or not even the saving, but how we spend them. Willing to distribute. Liberal financially. And then he highlights an attitude in verse number 19. What happens, what is going on in the lives of those who out of the abundance that God has richly given them, obey his commands to give? Well, you'll notice that there are a couple of lay-up statements or laying statements, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what the time to come is, folks, but I just personally think that it's the kingdom. One of the reasons that God gives to some people, which would be most of us, more than enough, is so that we can use a portion of what He has given us in excess to advance the kingdom. This is one of the reasons that missions giving is so critical, and thank you for your generous missions giving. But this is one of the reasons, folks, that missions giving is so vitally important. Jesus commanded us to make friends with the mammon of unrighteousness. To use unrighteous money for spiritual ends. This is what we are to do. And when they do this, verse number 19, that they may lay hold on eternal life. This is something that Paul told Timothy to do. We Talked about this. Get a grip on it. Now, Paul is in no way, folks, suggesting <clears throat> that those who have material surplus in this world have an unusual ability to buy their way into heaven. That's not what he's arguing at all. But they have a grip on eternal life. They are demonstrating that they really, can I put it this way, that they really buy into what God is teaching. That they really are banking on the fact. I mean, do right? And, and I think that I could say this about all of you who are regular and faithful to give, not only directly to the Lord through the tithe, but to others through missions and other needs, right? That you do not count that money as gone away but that that money is actually building in future value. That that is the best money that you will spend, not the worst money you will spend. Laying a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. If, if, if our thinking as a Christian is only this, look, I just want to die, and when I get, die and get to heaven... We are failing to comprehend that this life is a training ground for the next one. That there is more going on 
than living as well as we can here, stretching ourselves to the material limit, and then going to heaven when we die. So here are the charges, folks. If God has given you a surplus, do not misunderstand it. It really isn't that He likes you better than He likes other believers. And if God has blessed you financially, celebrate God, not the stuff. And be rich in good works. Be rich in good works. Be prepared to be financially liberal. Work to position yourself that you are truly able to make a difference, to use your material stuff for spiritual purposes. So that the life that is to come really has traction in the life that you're living now. God never said that poverty is a virtue. Self-inflicted poverty, and one of the conversations, by the way, and I just without going off on a tangent, one of the conversations, by the way, folks, that we never have as a civilization about poverty that never seems to reach any policy discussion is whether poverty is a cause or a symptom. We always treat it like it's cause. So we always come up with the answer that what people need is more money. We never ask whether mismanagement of funds or poverty is a symptom of other problems, which the Bible most clearly teaches it to be. So poverty is not a virtue. Mismanagement of our wealth is a sin. But having more than enough and using it well is a virtue. A gift of God. Let's use it that way. Let's pray tonight. Well, Father, you alone know the status of our position in this world and the condition of our hearts. But we certainly seem to be an assembly that, for the most part, has an abundance. Help us to use it wisely. Help us to use it as people who have laid hold on eternal life. And I pray this for us in Jesus' name. Amen.